there. Welcome to another bonus episode of the Supermarcado Bros video game music podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, guys, on this bonus Thursday episode, the week after our trip to MAGFest. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. And in light of some of the really exciting things that happened at MAGFest, we wanted to invite our third brother, Marty, onto the podcast, because we're all just going to kind of catch you guys up on some of the incredible stuff that's happened. Thanks for joining us, Marty. Yeah, guys, happy to be back. So this episode is pretty much going to be, like, the bulk of this is going to be the audio of our panel that we did this past weekend on the History of Video Game Music. We're going to record this little bumper kind of as a recap, a debrief of some of the fun things we did this weekend. But for the most part, this this episode will be for the people that weren't able to make it out to Washington, D.C., but still wanted to hear our panel. Totally. Uh, But, in fact, we wanted to record this little bumper at the beginning to catch you guys up on all of the other amazing, incredible things that the three of us experienced. Um, on our brief time at MAGFest. I mean, it, it was kind of surreal, all the things that happened, and the yeah. panel was just one of those really fun experiences. Yeah, so let's talk about... I mean, there's so much that happened. Maybe it makes sense to say some of our... Chronologically, let's start from the beginning. That's a good idea. On Friday, one of the cool things is that we finally got to meet in real life some of our favorite people, you know, Brian, Stephen Kelly, Carlos. Uh, it, w- it was people that we've known for a long time, but we met our friend uh, Chip, who's been a fan of the yeah, show. Yeah, to for actually a while. see these people in, in real life was r- a really cool experience. And just so many great panels. The Bear McCreary panel was super informative and uh, just refreshing. And we had a nice conversation with him. And really, I think Friday was just a lot of hanging out with cool people, uh, going to cool panels. For me, one of the highlights was uh, we, we went to a really cool concert. It was Mighty Number no. 9 Live. Yeah. And. It- Manami Matsume was playing uh, all the melodies to her new music and they actually <laughs> unveiled some new themes stuff that's uh, never been heard outside of Japan um, it was cool that night that was just uh, insane we went to see that show uh, with our friend Carlos um, and it was just I mean it was such mm-hmm. a blast getting to kind of meet these people in real life and to just be kind of surrounded by games and game music culture right Uh, but i think one of the most exciting things that happened was getting to meet the incredible manami matsuma and actually interview her i still can't believe we made that happen but we arranged a private interview with a translator and you guys should look out for that in the future yeah Um, we we have it uh it was all filmed and it was all recorded so that's something we're going to be looking into kind of editing and putting together for you guys it was just unbelievable. I mean, I think um, part of the reason we need this little bumper to debrief is uh, we're still debriefing <laughs> uh, however many days uh, since. We're still and, processing you know, it, it. Yeah, exactly. It sort of seems like we won't ever actually get to the end um, of that sort of come down. Uh, it was just such a thrill sitting on the other side of the table from Manami and such to be able to ask these questions, you know, that were just part of our imagination before. uh, It was absolutely crazy. So Friday, she had a panel. And so the first step was that Will and myself were able to give her our Mega Buster CD and meet her very briefly, take a picture with her. But it wasn't until Saturday uh, that we were able to actually arrange this interview, this exclusive interview. It was just like us in a conference room with this legendary game composer. It was absolutely an unforgettable experience. It was one of those sort of turning point moments, I feel like, in my life. I mean, I dreamed about stuff like that, getting to interview some of the classic, you know, Japanese video game composers. But to actually be there in that moment was so surreal. 
Oh, there's something, I think one of my favorite things is uh, the universality of music. You know, obviously she doesn't speak English. We don't speak Japanese. Uh, her translator was able to help us. But there were certain moments where it felt like we were understanding each other. And I think that speaks to just the power of music. You know, Will would sing something and she would immediately get it. And it was just such a uh, magical experience. Uh, there's, there's obviously a lot of other cool things that happened on Saturday. Obviously, our panel, which you guys will hear in a few minutes, uh, hopefully the audio will make sense to you guys. We did have a PowerPoint going along with it. So actually, the same day this goes up, if you want to head over to our YouTube channel, I'll upload the video of our panel as well. So if anyone wants to watch the video, you can watch that as well. Yeah, I think that'd be worth uh, checking out just to have some context for uh, what it is that we're, um, you know. And touching. then, Marty, uh, I know one of the things that I think all three of us were really blown away. Uh, you didn't get to go to the Mighty Number no. 9 concert, but you did get to join us for a concert on Saturday. That is right. Um, boy, it's amazing how much we packed into a very short amount of time. And yeah, uh, I mean, my MAGFest was uh, even a little bit more brief than your guys's. Uh, yeah, because I got in quite quite late on Friday night, and so it was mm -hmm. pretty much all day Saturday. Yeah, so Magfest actually uh, hosted the first ever live concert of the music of Journey, conducted by Austin Wintry, um, and it was performed by this amazing ensemble from Chicago. Now, Live Journey. Um, you might be wondering, like, oh, okay, so is it some sort of concert arrangement or suite? It was the entire game mm -hmm. um, played in real and time. Not choreographed, by, mind you. You know, like not choreographed at all, apparently, uh, and played by I think it was six lucky um, game players, just and crazy. I think that had been decided on Kickstarter or something. Um, so they were playing the game real time. Um, the ensemble, it was. You, it, it's hard to describe um, what it is that that we experienced. It was an amazing. Uh, essentially, it's, yeah. it was just all of these musicians reacting seemingly in real time. Well, it's the same way that the music functions in the game. And I, if anyone who's played Journey, um, maybe you notice this, or maybe you don't. But the music all feels very natural, and the timing of it is so succinct and really interlocks with the events that are happening in the game. And I think we're so. We're used to that in video games, but it's really once you see it being performed live that you realize how incredible it is that all this stuff syncs up. I mean, not only in their live performance, but I mean, even in the actual game itself, the fact that the music is dynamic enough to be able to... But on to... top of that, the fact that the length of the game is like the perfect length for a concert, yeah. you right. know, it's a very it's just, short yeah, game. So, so many of the so many of those individual elements just really came together. And um, there was a Q and a with Austin afterwards. And I got the opportunity to ask in a little bit more detail, um, just what sort of planning and logistics went into, to making all of that uh, possible, all of that synchronicity. Yeah. Some really good other panels on Saturday. Grant had a hilarious Grant panel, Kirkhope. Grant Kirkhope. Um, oh, and we're, you it's guys will hear amazing. on Monday, we actually had a great conversation with him. So you guys will hear that as part of Monday's we episode. We recorded a podcast um, just kind of in the yeah. hallway at MAGFest <laughs> with Steven and Brian. Um, that that's also, that's, uh, we, it was a Banjo-Kazooie episode. So, uh, the Grant interview be will be part of that. Yeah. You guys should look forward to that. It's a pretty crazy episode. Yeah. We, in general, we just had an unforgettable time. We can't wait to go back next year. We're already thinking of what fun panel topics we can do next year so i highly recommend to any of you out there who feel like you missed out first of all you did you definitely <laughs> missed out it was a blast and you should definitely think about joining us next year yeah we would love to see you 
Well, I think with that, we should probably get to our panel. So we're going to present the audio of our panel on the history of video game music live from MAGFest. We hope you guys enjoy this. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Thank you so much, guys, for coming out uh, to our panel on the history of video game music. Uh, just a little bit about us. We're the Super Mercado Brothers. Uh, my name is Will Brueggemann. This is my brother, Carl Brueggemann. Howdy. My name is Marty. Yeah, that's Marty Brueggemann. Um, we're all from uh, the Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minnesota. And we uh, host a weekly video game music podcast called the Super Mercado Bros Video Game Music Podcast. Uh, we're composers as well as podcasters. Some of you might be familiar with our tribute albums. We've made a few albums. You can actually see them there. We have some giveaways after the show if anyone's uh, curious. We've done albums in the style of Mega Man, Mario, Metroid, Sonic, you know, some of the most beloved series. Um, yeah, today we're going to be talking about the history of video game music. We only have an hour, so we're going to try to keep it as broad as possible, starting with the, the origins, moving all the way to where we are in 2016. And today we're specifically focusing on the consoles. I mean, I know there's just right. a plethora of brilliant music and work done, not only on the demo scene, but just on computer music in general. You could have a whole panel on computer music. I mean, you could have a whole panel on any one of these systems that we're looking at. The other thing is we're going to unfortunately only be sticking with the heaviest hitters. So That's true. no Turbo Graphics, no Neo Geo, things of that nature. We just don't have the time. But with but that said, it's, it is a real treat to be able to talk about this here at Bangfest, where a lot of the figures that are going to come up in our conversation are walking among us this weekend. Absolutely. Um, figures that um, you know loom really large uh, in each era of our video game history. So we're incredibly excited to be here with you guys. So let's get into it here. Uh, our conversation today pretty much starts with the Atari 2600. Uh, the Atari, yeah, shout out. The Atari was released in 1977, and it sold 30 million units, which is pretty dang impressive. Um, when you're talking about the sound on the Atari, uh, it really had a primitive two-channel pulse slash noise chip. Now, if anybody out there doesn't know what that means, a pulse chip is a very primitive way to generate a tone, a musical note, A, B flat, that kind of a thing. A uh, noise chip is kind of like if anyone has an old school CRTV when you didn't have a good signal and you saw sort of the static. white noise, the static when you were in between channels. So basically it's a way of controlling that noise to create uh, rhythmic sounds, sound effects, drum sounds. So it did have, uh, you know, especially from the time, not a bad uh, sound capability when we think about the, some of the early systems uh, that we might not be talking about. Uh, there are systems that didn't have any sound. Well, exactly. I mean, I think it's safe to say uh, from the very beginning of home console gaming, sound has actually always played a really important role. I mean, you, some of the earliest home consoles uh, accessories were some of the early Pong machines, the early Pong consoles, and they actually didn't have a way of producing sound from the TV, and so a lot of them actually had built-in internal speakers on the machines themselves. Um, I mean, this obviously wasn't music, but it was scoring the sound effects of Pong. So sound, sound has always played a role in even the earliest games. So we're going to play our first musical example today. One of the cool things about our presentation is we're going to play musical examples all throughout history. Uh, so I think it should be a good time. Let's start off with an example from the 2600. This is from a game called Pitfall 2 Lost Caverns. Uh, this theme was composed by the designer of the game, David Crane. Now back on the Atari, it was commonplace for the designer to do everything. They didn't have the time or the budget to hire a separate composer. So a lot of times what you hear in the 2600 musically is, I would say, quite lousy. 
uh, because these are not musicians. These are people that With are the forced, respect. forced to have to write music. Well, this is an example that is actually, I think, quite impressive. Music. Absolutely, and I think it's also safe to say throughout the history of video games, there kind of is this tradition of developers doing um, composing. I mean, you think of like Cave Story, or even recently, the phenomenal soundtrack to Undertale. Um, We're kind of coming back around to that, which is really fun. So let's play this music example. This is the main theme from Pitfall 2. This came out in 1984, actually. So it's just before something very important that we're going to move on to next. So this gives you an example of a very late Atari 2600 game. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are wonderful about this piece musically. I mean, we talk about how so advanced this is for the Atari 2600. Um, but I think it, the cool thing about video games, particularly in the earliest eras, is that it, it sort of forces not only the creators, but the players to broaden their imaginations. I mean, a theme like this, I think, is really trying to evoke a lot of film music of the time. It's really trying to put... Kind of like Indiana Jones or something. Yeah, yeah. Or something. It's a grand adventure. I mean, you, even you get some, honestly, like orchestral effects. We had the... Which is probably supposed to sound like a trilling flute or something. Really cool stuff. Well, at this point, we said this came out in 1984. That same year, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with some of the wonderful documentaries that have come out in recent years about the video game industry. The crash of 1984. The year after that, <laughs> this little system came out. If anyone has heard of this. Yeah, a round of applause for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It's for the video game industry. This was released in 1985. Anybody have a guess uh, how many units it sold? Uh, 61 million units. That's a lot. Uh, the Atari sold 30, so more than uh, double what the Atari sold. And uh, you just really, honestly, you could have, we could totally have two panels on the NES. It is incredibly important. Uh, next year, yeah, that's great. We actually, we've had a, a podcast topic called Evolution of the NES, which we were thinking about maybe doing next year. Uh, let's move on to some of the, to talk a little bit about the sound hardware. So, on the NES, you had five total sound channels. Three of those were pitch. Uh, so really, you know, if anybody saw the wonderful panel uh, here yesterday uh, with the wonderful Naomi Matsumai, she talked a little bit about that. Three tone channels, for the most part, are bass, a melody, and a harmony. A noise channel, like we've said before, using that white noise, which sounds kind of like used a lot for drums and sound effects. The last thing you have on here that you really didn't start to see until later on in the NES's lifespan was the very low-quality sample channel. Yeah, that sample channel, um, it's what's called a DPCM channel, and so it, it creates, actually, you think of, you know, the NES as being an 8-bit system, but the samples that it was able to produce were actually only 1-bit samples. So they're very compressed. Occasionally in games, um, you would actually have them as, like, dialogue. I think there's an infamous example Ghostbusters for the NES on the title screen. Oh, fuck that! Um, but eventually, later on, we're hoping to 
hopefully going to hear some examples where it's used to, in music as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you move on to the next slide here, uh, we're going to play a musical example. Great, you know, you're hearing something from Gyromite. But we're going to play, uh, we're going to take a listen today to a track from Castlevania, the original Castlevania game. This track we're going to play is called Wicked Child. It was composed by Kinoyo Yamashita. And this is such a beloved piece of music, uh, probably not as much as Vampire Killer, which is maybe a little bit more famous, uh, but definitely very, very beloved here. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the influences musically that you start to hear in this time. So let's take a listen to Wicked Child. Musically, it's pretty in your face. It's having a lot of fun, and I think for the listener, 
we're having a lot of fun. Well, I think the other thing to mention, the clear, clear focus on melody. When you only have um, three voices, you really need to distill it down to a bass line, a harmony line, and a melody line. And I think that's one of the reasons that music, um, it's not just nostalgia. I mean, there, we were listening to a lot more kind of crafted tunes back then. One little shout out, uh, the NES sound chip was developed by a gentleman by the name of Yukio Kaneoka, um, a very early Nintendo composer, and I doubt he imagined he was working on that, how long this would have lived on. People yeah, are still making still chips to be the gold standard to this day, that and Game Boy for sure. So now we'll move on, we're going to play one more example for the NES. This, anyone heard this game, Journey to Silius? Wonderful it's soundtrack. Journey to Silius is in the audience somewhere. Uh, this handsome gentleman by the name of Naoki Kadaka. We want to play one more NES example because this is from the, the late uh, side of the NES lifespan. And it uses that EPCM sample channel not for drums, but for bass, actually. So the bass that you're hearing in this track is not the triangle channel. It's it's individual sampled notes of a bass guitar recording pitched up and down. And it sounds a little clunky, a little crappy, but for the NES, it sounds incredibly advanced. So this gives you another pitch channel. Stage three. Did you guys hear the use of the swelling pulse channels in the very beginning, the use of volume, and very sophisticated uses of those that much more sophisticated than something that we already know in 1986 from Castlevania. I think the other thing, uh, when that melody came in, da, 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 didn't it almost sound like it had some sort of reverberation to it? Like it almost sounded like it was existing in a vast space. This is another technique that was used all over, um, I mean, even well into the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo. It's where they, um, but it's even more impressive on the NES because of the limitation of channels. They would use two pulse channels just for a melody. And they would have, it would be the same part, but it would be delayed and offset and also a little bit quieter. So that delay effect almost gives us the sense that we're in kind of a large reverberant space. Absolutely. Now I think it's time to move on to this little system. Round of applause. <laughs> we know it as the Sega Genesis uh, here in the States. Uh, Mega Drive, it was originally known in Japan and Europe. Mega Drive came out, or I wish I'd say the, the Sega Genesis, because we're, you know, we're talking about North America at least days here, in 1989. Uh, and guess how many units uh, the Genesis sold? 30 million, actually. So about, that is correct. about half of the NES, about the same as the 2600. So it did quite well uh, all around the world, really. Uh, the Genesis is, I love, I absolutely I love the Sega Genesis. That's the system that we grew up with. Uh, musically, such an exciting time. Let's talk a little bit about some of the specs. You had a whopping 10 total sound channels on Sega Genesis. Um, six channels of FM synth. Now, if anyone doesn't know what FM synth, it stands for frequency modulation. And in the 80s, uh, that was the most exciting sound you start to hear in pop music. The Yamaha DX7 keyboard, one of the first popular keyboards to implement FM synth. You would hear it in pop music. Uh, you would hear it in early arcade game music of the late 80s. Uh, computer music, the PC-88 in Japan. We, did, we weren't really familiar with that at the time. So for a lot of people, the Sega Genesis was really the first introduction to this new, crisp, 
quality of synthesized music. So it's this a is really versatile sound. The yeah. sound of FM synthesis, like Carl said, it's really crisp. It sounds um, actually much cleaner uh, to our ears. Uh, there's something a little bit distant about the sort of sine wavy sounds about it that just hits you really hard as the bass. So in addition to those FM channels, you have four channels of PSG. And that will sound more 8-bit to you guys. That will sound similar to the Game Boy, similar to the NES. So you had those in conjunction with each other, as well as the, the last FM channel could be equipped to play 8-bit samples. So when you think about Sonic the Hedgehog, that classic drum, that kick and snare, drink, those are samples. Uh, you can only have one at a time, so you can never have more than one sample at a time. But that's what we have on the audio department from the Genesis. And kind of the most impressive use of the samples is the Sega logo itself. Uh, game. And it really ended up taking up most of the cartridge's disk space. <laughs> the other thing to, that's important to note is, much like the NES, the limitations and the specific quirks of the hardware are affecting the nature of the music of the composition. So we're going to play an example. Uh, we're aware that this is a little bit later on in the Genesis lifespan, but we think it is just a quintessential example. We're going to play a track from Sonic 3. Anybody a fan of this game? So much lore direction of this game. We'll talk a little bit about it again. Maybe the whole panel next year on this on Sonic. There could absolutely be a biggest mystery in video game music. Um, we're gonna play Angel Island Zone Act One, which was most likely composed by Tomonori Sawada and Yoshiaki Kashima. Let's take a listen to the wonderful interaction between the FM and the PSG. Things that evoke outside musical genres much easier than you could have on the NES. When we think about the NES, you have bass, melody, and harmony. But here, we have all these textures. I mean, you have that uh, arpeggiating, like, that almost sounds like a rolling mallet percussion. But then in addition to that, you also have these, there's all this much more layered texture. And all that's able to continue on even once the melody is introduced. So you really, um, there's a lot more room for syncopation. And then in the uh, in the melody, we're hearing the uh, technique that Will alluded to a few minutes ago, with the sort of uh, two channels playing the same material staggered to the delay, delay sound. Yeah, I remember last year Tommy Tallarico had an interesting panel. He was talking about one thing that he used to do is he would have, let's say, the a guitar solo on one of the FM channels, something really harsh and kind of biting it snarly, and then he would have that same melody being played quietly on the PSG channel slid a little bit, so it sounds like almost delay or reverb. He was sure. using both of the channels. Uh, and if anyone is uh, is familiar, the YM2612 is the name of the actual chip on the Genesis, so that's the Sega Genesis for you in a nutshell. So we know that Sonic 3 uh, came out in 1994, so we're not going completely chronologically in terms of soundtracks, but we just right. wanted, this is, I mean, I think one of the most impressive of the Sega Genesis and very innovative. And with that said, I think we'll move on to this. Yeah. If Super Nintendo were here today, she would be so touched. Super Nintendo, I think, on maybe most people's list of maybe the number one console of all time, you see it all over the place. It's just an absolutely legendary console. Will's going to take the reins on talking a little bit about 
sound on the Super NES? Yes, so a, a very interesting um, specs on the Super Nintendo. So far, the consoles that we've looked at all have synthesis-based ways of producing their sound. We talked about the Yamaha FM chip, and then we talked about the pulse channels on the NES and the Atari. But the Super Nintendo is different. It actually is composed of only sample channels. Um, there's actually eight sample channels on the Super Nintendo, and the sound chip was specially designed by Sony. And they're a player that's going to come back later in their relationship, their interesting relationship with Nintendo. It's interesting how they collaborated with Nintendo in this time. And right. in a few years from now, that would be the opposite. Right. Yes, we're going to get to that a little bit later. But the important thing to note about the Super Nintendo is that every game's soundtrack was able to have a completely new lineup of instruments. For the first time, you were more accurately able to represent the timbre and sound of real instruments. True. And you get it right from the launch title in Super Mario World. This gentleman, Koji Kondo, I mean, I think it's safe to say this whole convention would not exist without him and his contribution to video games and video game music. So we're going to play this example because we think it's a great example of, Mark's going to touch on it after he played, of the quirky instrumentation here. Uh, that probably wasn't possible before this. Let's take a listen to the overworld from Super Mario World. Beautiful. How about a round of applause for So for Carl and Will and myself, Koji Kondo is one of the true compositional giants of our lives. Um, up there with Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, John Williams, Richard Rogers, whoever. Um, and so we're always chomping at the bit to get more uh, information from interviews for, from Koji Kondo about his process. We do know a little bit about um, where his headspace was when um, making Super Mario World and faced with the new technology of the Super Nintendo, uh, he realized that there were amazing possibilities because of these sample channels who could now sort of approximate real-world instruments in a way that wasn't possible before. But it made him wonder, oh, so what will make it sound like a video game? What will make it sound unique to games and not like music from some other art form? And so what he worked right? Right. So what he landed on is like, well, what if I use real-world sounding instruments, but in combinations that would never exist anywhere else. So here we have mandolin, we have steel drum, we have electric bass. We have flute. Yeah, and it, it, set, it really set the standard for what the Super Nintendo's aesthetic would be musically. I mean, even into those incredible square RPGs, you think of something like Chrono Trigger that has a quasi-orchestral sound to it, but many of the tracks feature an electric bass. I think that kind of willingness to borrow from different genres and different instruments is really distinctly and it's and it becomes distinctly video game. It has that video game sound to it. That oh, quirky it's, combination. It's really something that he landed on that with honestly with the launch title. And I think for a lot of us that played the game when it came out, we weren't necessarily struck with, oh, listen to this crazy combinations of instruments. It just sounded like, oh wow, this is a nice video game sound. The last thing that we definitely should talk about with the uh, Super NES is um, really important early soundtracks such as Axe Razor. You don't share anybody? Um, 
soundtracks such as that, Link to the Past, soundtracks that established this reputation for the Super Nintendo being known for orchestral music. For the first time, that was really fully possible because obviously things like Dragon Quest, you would hear, you hear that influence uh, in the 8-bit world, but now, because because we have these string samples, you know, you might have sure. a track that's consisting of six different string parts, all using the same string sample, and it starts to feel pretty lush and pretty full. Uh, and that is something that the Genesis could not do as well because it was synthesized. So there are certain advantages, I would say, to the SNES and the Genesis. In general, the Genesis seemed to be tailor-made for rhythmic, punchy music such as funk and dance and rock. And the SNES, for the most part, seemed to be tailor-made for uh, maybe a little bit more softer or kind of... They, they had the ability to actually have um, a synthesized reverb, too, so you could have more yeah. ambience. Donkey Kong Country is a great example of that, if you guys want to listen to that sound. Uh, yeah, we use that term of reverb uh, effect a lot. It, it is so interesting how the specs of the hardware themselves, of the two consoles of the era, uh, which were were famous for uh, really competing with each other. There was an excellent book by Blake Harris that was released last year, Console Wars, which I recommend anyone who's interested in the subject. Um, but it doesn't just come down to sort of their differences in advertising philosophy or characters. Um, from the actual hardware themselves, there is a line in the sand yeah, it's amazing um, how well each of the each of the companies embraced. Yeah, and, their and you have different people that prefer different systems. I have definitely realized in the interviews we've done, people like Matt Furness, Tommy Tallarico, um, a track that was designed for the Genesis and implemented for the Genesis, and then had to be converted for the Super Nintendo for a game like, let's say, Cool Spot, which is released for both. Uh, it was a terrible process. The Super Nintendo version usually sounded a lot worse. Uh, I, 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 it's probably safe to say that vice versa could be true. If you wrote something for the Super Nintendo and had to convert it to the Genesis, like Link to the Past or Actors, or it just, I don't even see well, how you I think another that. interesting example is uh, take Super Mario All-Stars, because that has probably some of the most famous music of all time. Um, in the original Mario games, it's, it's not all that clear whether the synth sounds are trying to approximate any real-world instruments. Um, so when that conversion was done, uh, I think for some of us, it was the rearrangement could be a bit jarring. Yeah. Well, I think at this point, it makes sense to move on to this next system. Like we said before, we're, we're definitely aware of the systems that we don't have time for today, such as TurboGrafx. I always refer to TurboGrafx as 10-bit, as far as the sound department. It sounds like it's in between the NES and the Super Nintendo to me. Um, we're going to move on to the Sega Saturn. Kind of a tragic system. Yeah. We appreciate the slow clap for the Saturn. Uh, where were you guys before, you know, in the 90s? Yeah, um, yeah it, it, uh, the Saturn, it sold 9 million units. So, uh, that's pretty good. It's okay. It was released in 1994 in Japan and 1995 in North America. It was discontinued in 1998, so not the longest run. Um, one of the nails in the coffin for the Saturn was that it wasn't able to have a mainline Sonic game. Uh, it, it almost happened, but it, 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 didn't, it didn't happen. So that was a real problem. Uh, you had you know, plenty of spin-off Sonic games. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the sound on the Sega Saturn. This is a really exciting turning point in the history of video game music. For the first time, composers had 
uh, not just with Saturn, but around this time of you know the mid '90s, uh, they didn't have these harsh limitations of the past. They were able to have things like CD audio, Red Book audio, to make recordings on their own in their own studios and put them on the discs, and people around the world were able to hear fully symphonic music, fully uh, you know rock tracks with real performers. In addition to that, the Saturn did have an FM synth chip similar to the Genesis. So you do hear some soundtracks that utilize that, but for the most part, uh, probably the most beloved soundtracks on the Saturn feature uh, Red Book Audio. We're gonna play one quick example from a game called Guardian Heroes. So this is a pretty good example, pretty decent example of uh, something that's fairly effective in this era. Uh, it still feels catchy and campy um, and fun, like old school video game music, but it utilizes better instruments. And later on in this track you'll hear, there's actually a soprano sax. And, and so aesthetically it feels uh, in the style of the Japanese composed video game music from the 80s and early 90s. The one thing is this does bring up a new challenge. Now that music for video games can have a modern production aesthetic, it doesn't do so well in terms of dating itself. Uh, not, you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, just let's be honest. Let's be honest here. Listening to this track with that soprano sax solo, to me, this sounds way more out of date and less timeless than the Super Mario World. Track. Well, because the, the thing is, the Super Nintendo, the Nintendo, the Sega Genesis, it was never really contemporary. You know, I mean, at the time, it didn't sound like music that you would hear on the radio. It was these synthesizers. But so in a way, it's never really aged. It's always sort of stayed the same. Where once you get into the Sega Saturn and the PlayStation, you have this wonderful ability of breaking free from these limitations. Uh, unfortunately, some of the production choices and sometimes the musical choices of the era, um, some technology plays a role. A little carried away with you know, certain things like gated reverb and drums and I think it's, big it's, orchestra hits. It's a bit ironic because I think the composers of this time would never would have imagined that. They probably thought, oh my gosh, this is the future. This, and in some ways it is, it was the future. Um, but you know, I think for the most part, when we go back and listen to that original Castlevania track we played, Mega Man 2, these classic uh, retro examples of video game music, in some ways they hold up better nowadays than early examples of CD audio, in my opinion. Well, yeah. their, their context is right with them, and we can't ever really bring them out of their context. Like, our brains are just so fast at processing that sort of thing. Like, right away you realize it's like, oh, yeah, this is built inside of a little computer box, and it's like, I so love accept it. it right. You know, when you hear this, it's like, oh, this could come from anywhere. It's also a really interesting kind of historical phenomenon. If you would have been charting it, it would have seemed like, okay, we have three channels of Zoom. Now we have ten. What are we going to have next? Twenty? But actually, that little thing, we look back to the Nintendo, there's a one-bit sample channel that can maybe only play a sample for a couple seconds. Essentially what happened is we've got a 16-bit stereo sample channel that can play as long as your disk space is. Absolutely. Um, and so the idea of having synths in the machine that really play uh, real-time all of your music, we see that start to fade away. So that brings us up to our next system. Uh, Marty's going to take the reins talking about yeah. the PlayStation. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. Uh, again, the, uh, the Blake Harris's book on the console wars uh, has a wonderful coverage of the origins of the PlayStation. And some of you may, may know um, it has a lot to do with the history of Nintendo. 
we mentioned earlier that Sony helped develop the sound chip on the Super Nintendo. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, their relationship went further than that. Um, they were contemplating how they could get into the uh, CD-ROM uh, space with a, with a console machine. And so Nintendo and Sony were collaboratively um, developing the system that would be originally an add-on for the Super Nintendo um, called, be called the PlayStation. The Nintendo PlayStation. Really fun Googling rabbit hole. Um, there are have been some photos that have emerged of the prototype. It's essentially a Super Nintendo controller. If you look at the PlayStation controller, that's essentially what we have, except we've um, added some handholds. Yeah. Those are really important. You need those to hold on to it. Unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't come to fruition. So it was, a, it was kind of a shocking story. There was a, a tech expo where uh, Sony had a presentation, um, and I think it was a day or two later, Nintendo had a presentation. So in Sony's little presentation, they were showing people the prototype. They're like, this is the Nintendo PlayStation. See what it can do, put your hands on it. And then when it came time for Nintendo's presentation, Nintendo was speaking publicly before a fairly large crowd and said, you know, we're excited to enter into the realm of CDs. We wanted to partner with one of the biggest names in CDs, Philips. And they announced that live. Uh, the Sony rep was sitting in the audience, had no idea that was going to happen. Publicly shamed. So really publicly shamed them, burned a bridge. Who knows whether they realized what they were creating, which was who knows their, how fiercest, much, yeah. their fiercest competitor. Who really had every right, right to run yeah. with, the, with the technology. And they ended up, as a lot of us know, running with um, some of the developers that, like Squaresoft, that uh, Nintendo had been really proud to showcase on their previous system. Yeah, so we have the PS1 uh, being released in 1995, just a year after, uh, same year actually, I guess, I guess it's the Saturn in North America. Um, anyone want to guess how many units the PS1 sold? Keep in mind, NES sold 61, that was huge, uh, Atari 30. 102 um, for the PS1, incredibly successful video game console. Uh, we're gonna play an example from Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Let's hear it. This is Dragon's Castle. Music. We might 
might think, wait, but that sounds like synths. Um, it is there some kind of synths going on? And so, yeah, it's just that the difference is that the music is being produced um, uh, in, let's say, the home studios or maybe a recording studio of the composer. So they're utilizing whatever tools they have available, which often will be synths. And it's just that that final product is packaged in a WAV file or WAV file. As right. Uh, at least, Do you guys at least know that they say WAV. <laughs> Nobody says WAV. Um, <laughs> crazy. So at least for the examples of, of the Red Book audio now, and similar to the to the um, really the, the SNES, uh, the PlayStation did have a sample, uh, twenty-four channel sample chip. So a lot of samples. So you do hear some really advanced soundtracks that use the sample chip. For example, I mean, I think there's a couple moments in some of the Final Fantasy mm -hmm. that. It's cool because you know you go from Final Fantasy VI or I guess it was three in North America mm -hmm. to Final Fantasy VII, and it almost sounds similar yeah. on like an audio level. You know, sure, it doesn't right. sound much more advanced, but for the most part, you know these big heavy hitting soundtracks that utilize like let's you know Medal of Honor for example, the original Medal of Honor by Michael Giacchino, to be able to do that in a video game just absolutely mind blowing. So with that said, I think we could probably move on to this system. <laughs> Probably most of you know this came out in 1996, and uh, this sold 32 million units. So definitely, you know, nothing. Uh, 102 is too much. It's kind of gauche. I, I like 32. Pretty successful. Uh, not nearly as successful commercially as the PS1. Uh, interesting when we talk Did about this. Did you notice though the PS1? The applause was a little polite. I think it's kind of warm. This was. We'll we'll get into maybe why that is. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about sound. Really interesting to talk about sound on the Nintendo 64. It was super hard to work on the system. There's no dedicated sound chip. We know this, you know, we've talked to you know people like the wonderful Grant Kirkhope who's gonna be here next. Stick around, everybody's gonna be in this room at 11. Um, there's no dedicated sound chip on the Nintendo 64, so that means that audio and graphics, uh, they both were performed by the same CPU, which meant that the more time you put into the space you put into the graphics, it meant that the audio suffered. So Carl, and it's almost like, are you implying that Nintendo wasn't at the cutting edge of audio on the system? Yeah, that's kind of what I'm implying. Um, a lot of people considered, on a technical level, the N64 to be a pretty significant step down from the PS1. Uh, it really, for the most part, sounds like a little bit, little bit higher fidelity Super Nintendo music. Um, so what I was saying earlier with the fact that if more uh, graphical power was put into a game, the audio suffered. Take a guess what took priority in the development of a game. Graphics. Uh, so a lot of times uh, the audio, there was just not a lot of space. Uh, and that's a similar story that we've heard on the Super Nintendo. Composers faced with such a small amount of space and the amazing uh, ingenuity and creativity you see to make that work is just phenomenal. Well, and I, I also think it's safe to say one of the reasons why so many people applauded for the Nintendo 64, I mean, this is Magfest. All of us are huge fans of video game music. And the N64 had phenomenal music. This is Corneria from Star Fox 64. Uh, but the Nintendo 64 had fantastic music in part because of the limitations. And maybe they were unfair and not in keeping with the time. But I think the reality was is that the composers working for the system, they weren't going to be able to wow anyone with the sound of the music they right. They didn't have that luxury. So what's the only other way to they make it? They did what they always done. They wrote good melodies. They wrote memorable tunes. 
that's why a lot of music from the Nintendo 64, I mean, we think of Super Mario 64, Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo GoldenEye, yeah. the list goes on and on. Yeah, when, when, you're, when you're thinking of your favorite uh, Nintendo 64 songs, you're probably actually hearing just like the core melodic and harmonic ideas, where I think a lot of times we're listening when we're thinking of uh, a modern, really sophisticated, well-produced piece of audio, we're kind of thinking of the whole atmosphere and the sort of sonic characteristics. Sure. And it's really, I think, our relationship with Nintendo 64 music, like the music of Koji Kondo and a lot of other great Nintendo composers, is kind of purely musical. And it's every bit as, to me, uh, and I think to a lot of you, it's every bit as classic. It feels like classic Nintendo music. Just how the Super Nintendo feels that way. And I will say that uh, for me, and it all depends on what you grew up with, I don't share that same feeling towards the music of the PS1. I think some people do. Um, but I think it did represent a change in, in some of the traditions and some of the styles of video gaming. I, mean, it was probably, I think the, the original PlayStation was more influential to where we are presently um, in the current state of video game music than the Nintendo 64. Um, but I, I mean, you've got a lot one little tidbit I forgot to mention with uh, going back to Super Mario World, one of the earliest examples of interactivity in games, anybody knows what happened when you jump when you jump on Yoshi in Super Mario World? Yeah, the bongos come in. It's a really easy uh, way to make the player feel like they have control. You know, the music is changing. Well, and that's, that's the same technique we did. One of the advantages of actually having the music being produced live by a sound chip that they were able to have these kind of interlocking layers to the song sure. that could be added and replaced. And in the early days of CD audio, that wasn't really a possibility. Um, but eventually, uh, um, we're going to come around to that. Yeah, so, uh, boo-hoo, everybody. Let's <laughs> we're going to just, yeah, it's too soon. It's too soon. <laughs> if we were to play example, I would probably go for something from Shenmue. Uh, but the thing is, we're, we're gonna, what we're talking about in this era with the PS2, Dreamcast, not much difference. Uh, really, we're talking about this whole era, right? So musically, not a lot of difference between something released on the Dreamcast and something released on the PlayStation Which 2. is also an advantage from a, develop, a development point of view, because sure. if you're porting games, we can just move this audio <laughs> file. Uh, and I always find it interesting that uh, in Japan, you'd still see releases on the Dreamcast up until oh, you know, sure. mid-2000s. Yeah. Pretty crazy. But the PS2 uh, was released in 2000, uh, a year after the Dreamcast, unfortunately for Sega. And then that was the final nail in Sega's hardware coffin. Um, anybody know how many units the PS2 sold? 155 million units. Absolutely incredible. Uh, it wasn't discontinued until 2013. It had a 13-year run. Yeah. Um, I'm sure tons of you guys have a PS2. Uh, I'm just assuming in your, in your house. Uh, absolutely incredibly successful. We're going to play a musical example from the Silent Hill series. This is from Silent Hill 2. Composed by the wonderful Let's take a listen to the theme of Laura Reprise. Uh, he recorded a violin player and then was able to manipulate it. 
listen to how good this sounds. Uh, we're starting to get closer to where we are today. There's not a lot of musical differences. Uh, obviously, you're going to hear you're going to hear still more use of samples and MIDI and stuff. And then I time. think it, the technology has to do with games and has to just do with audio recording on the audio recording side. I mean, um, the quality of our sampled instruments has improved vastly in the last 10, 15 years. Because of this uh, increase in technology. It's, it's totally logical that composers, and also, you know, you have to talk about the types of games that were released in this era. A game like Silent Hill, this is a pretty melodic example, but most of the series is incredibly creepy and ambient, and it's totally fitting the tone of the game. You know, if you have something like Mario World, it doesn't make sense to have anything other than bright, catchy, fun music for that kind of game. For something like Silent Hill, it should, this is the kind of music that fits the experience. So we're, we're fitting the experience just as well as we always have been, but the experiences are changing, so the music is changing. Right, it's interesting. It's, um, what's great about a game like Castlevania um, and the entire aesthetic of the game is they're essentially embracing what, what was possible for them to make. Uh, let's say they want to make a horror game. Well, it can really only be so frightening um, when the characters that you're drawing with those little pixels look so um, so simple and so cartoony and the music is so limited. So they embraced it and instead made something that was sort of winky and twirling the mustache and a little bit campy. Uh, it became possible uh, with all of the advancing technology to tell these more uh, subtly uh, and emotionally nuanced yeah. types of stories and accompany that with uh, the appropriate music. Well, and we're going to continue that discussion with this next system here. Uh, again, uh, yep, let's give a little applause for the original Xbox. Uh, again, not a lot of specific, you notice no more sound tech information, less of a, less of a really a conversation point because everything is pretty much sounding similar. Uh, this is a, is a really important game to talk about. Really the main reason to buy an Xbox at launch. This is Halo Combat Evolved. We're going to play a track called Rock Anthems for Saving the World composed by Marty O'Donnell. Great example. And really kind of this game and the soundtrack ushered in a new generation of first-person shooters. And in general, this is letting you know this is what a modern game in 2001, this is what it's going to sound like, this is what it's going to look like, this is what it's going to play like, and we never really went back after that point. Well, I, I think it's interesting to say, um, it, it really to kind of notice that the, the, though there may not be a lot of similarities um, in the bloodline of the Halo that you can really trace back to the 8-bit era, there is something about video game music that it just seems natural to combine genres and combine influences. I mean, in Halo, we obviously have the influence of modal folk music, some classical music, Orchestral with film music. rock. You, you know, this right. combining of genres and it all just feels perfectly natural. And I think part of the reason, as gamers, we're kind of used to just getting the quirky stuff. We're used to getting, just grab this piece from here, grab this piece from there. You know, it doesn't need to sound like something you hear at a concert hall or even, you know, at a rock show. It doesn't need to have one um, definite aesthetic. And I think that's really because most of us have played games ever since we were kids, and that's really always what it's been. And then we have this. <laughs> Given this uh, uh, talk at another convention, and when 
the GameCube slide came up, it was like chuckle. It was a laugh. Just thinking about so to get like that rocket supply was pretty amazing. Nice. That Halo track. Uh, this is the GameCube. Obviously, the last thing we'll talk about in this generation. Uh, so interesting because a familiar story with Nintendo. The composers having to face these harsh limitations that are set on by Nintendo. Uh, you know, they decided to, to use mini discs, and there were some some issues with that. Uh, it was harder to port games. It was it was harder to fit um, uh, you know uncompressed sound, fully uncompressed soundtracks on these discs. But because of these limitations, you have things like Zelda: uh, One of the greatest stories ever. Uh, Nintendo is making music the way they always have been. Every bit as melodic and engaging as the stuff you heard in the Super Nintendo era. It does feel like it's a little bit more cutting edge uh, than something from that era, but so much more, um, I guess, primitive than what you would hear in a traditional Xbox. Game. What is interesting, though, is I feel like, particularly in this era, it does start to solidify Nintendo's philosophy, which not only they have a high respect for tradition, the tradition of their franchises, but also the, um, the traditions of video game music. The reason why we all love a piece like this yeah. um, is because of the reasons why we loved uh, music on the Nintendo, why we love music on the Super Nintendo. The melodies. It's, it's the really strong, incredible melodies. And um, there were definitely some examples of uh, soundtracks. For, you know, we think about like Star Fox Assault. That was a fully orchestral. So sure. there are examples of that on the GameCube, just as there are examples of very strong melodic uh, content on the Xbox and PS2 for sure. But for the most part, you're starting to etch in these lines of Nintendo kind of doing really what they've always been doing over here, and then Sony and Microsoft more concerned with how are we going to you know move over to the future and what are we going to do that's new. And you made um, such an interesting point too, where um, it's it's absolutely a philosophy of the Nintendo composers to really uh, emphasize melody and clarity, um, but also they're really they're they don't have any other choice. They're yeah. really forced to continue yeah. to to work within limitations, and it, it's such an interesting yeah. dynamic. The, for the most part, the GameCube was also a very difficult system. We, we interviewed uh, David Wise on our podcast a couple years ago, and he was talking about how incredibly difficult it was to work on the GameCube uh, hardware. So with that said, I think we'll stick with Nintendo for a little bit, <laughs> talk about this. We're going to be a little bit out of order, but, out of order, but I think but it's fair to say, move on to this era. Because a lot of the internals of GameCube are so similar to the Wii. Um, I think we might as well continue yeah, so, our discussion. So the Wii was released uh, November of 2006, and it sold a whopping 101 million units. I think the success of that is largely due to, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, the advertising and marketing geared geared towards families, geared towards people that have never really played a video game or bought a video game console. It was in. It felt like it was in like everybody's house. You know. Uh, so it was incredibly commercially successful. I think for music, for music, it was a really exciting time because the release of a series such as Mario Galaxy. <laughs> super, super exciting. For the first time uh, in a mainline Mario game, you're able to have a fully orchestral soundtrack. 
uh, it finally feels like Nintendo is kind of catching up to the competitors and trying to release something on a presentational level that's every bit as cutting edge as what you're hearing on the other systems. So let's take a listen to a track from Mario Galaxy 2. This is Bowser Jr.'s Fiery Flotilla. Cartridge or a disc. 
Um, essentially, as we are, are getting to higher capacity formats, um, you know, it's not like audio is getting to higher and higher resolution. So really, the amount of space that audio requires is kind of negligible, um, which means that we get to use a lot more of it. So there, uh, in the jumping on Yoshi example, we added a layer of bongo drums that responded uh, dynamically to when you jumped onto Yoshi. Well, there's an incredible amount of dynamic response in modern games, but it's not just a layer of bongo drums. It could be a, a whole other track. melody, uh, whole other streams of percussion, and maybe even left turns into, yeah, an entire It's one of the things of music. that make modern video games so exciting as the player. Uh, one last example we're gonna play. Um, does anybody know this? Wii U? Um, yeah. Um, I think when this came out, some people thought it was an add-on. I remember we were, we were waiting. We bought it on the opening night, uh, and a lot of people were coming in the Best Buy and like, "Oh, there's a new Wii system." People didn't know; they thought it was an add-on. Uh, unfortunately, not a lot of people bought this system. Uh, that example you heard from Mario 3D World, it couldn't be more different from you know, let's say you know, like a classic example of like. PS4 track or Xbox One track. This is the classic Wii U track. It could not be more different. But I, I think it's important to mention the fact that when we talked about etching that line in the sand, the difference between Nintendo and you know the other console developers. But I don't really think that really holds so true anymore because the thing is nowadays there any type of soundtrack that you want to hear in a video game already exists with the addition of the mobile market. Um, and a lot of new exciting things happening with indie games. I mean, Nintendo isn't the only one that's sort of doing their own thing. Well, you know, it's like that was a classic example. And then you listen to something like this. You know, if you guys can hear this. This is from Black Ops 3. Uh, just to show you uh, pretty much the most current example we'll play today. One interesting thing about this is if you listen to this, you told somebody it was from a modern, like, espionage film movie, they would totally believe you. There's less to distinguish movies and video games uh, than there was in, in the past. And whether that's good or bad is to be determined. Uh, one thing that's so exciting about where, we are, where we're at right now is we have something like Fallout and we have something like Shovel Knight. And it's such an exciting time to be a fan of video game music because you have this new reverence for the past. People like Jay Kaufman, Minami Masume almost feels like her, uh, you know, renaissance in some ways. Sure. These people working on these new indie games. So it's an incredibly exciting time to be a fan of video game music. And you have a, you know, a video game soundtrack being nominated for a Grammy in Journey, and Austin Wintry is actually going to be here later today um, having a panel. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some really exciting new things happening with the medium. Video games find themselves in an interesting place because there isn't this one cultural consensus as far as what the musical aesthetic is, the way that there maybe was in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I think a lot of the composers at the time maybe didn't realize uh, the impact they were having on all of us um, in the specific kind of musical identity that all those games share, which while a lot of the incredible music being made now maybe doesn't borrow a lot from that, right. like Carl mentioned, you do yeah. have examples like Shovel Knight where there is this 
wonderful reference. Yeah, I think it looks like we're approaching the end. We're going to open it up for maybe one or two questions, but we just wanted to give a little plug. We do have a video game music podcast. You can find our website at supermarcadobrothers.com. Follow us at Marcado Bros. Does anybody have a question before we have to get going here? We'll go with you. technology, the classic LucasArts adventure games, one of the Amiga examples of interactivity. So many exciting things happening in the PC world. Uh, this panel it was talking about the consoles, but there really, to me, seems to be uh, almost two different lines. There's kind of what was happening in the PC world, what was happening in the console world. You could, you could also talk about handheld. what was happening in the arcade sphere, I mean, particularly right. during the 8 and 16-bit era in a lot of games that are really popular and beloved for the NES and Super Nintendo and Genesis. Well, what's cool is somebody like Peter McConnell, who worked on Monkey Island 2, uh, you know, Day of the Tentacle, these classic LucasArts PC games, eventually would move over to the console sphere, uh, start to work on, you know, the Sly Cooper series. So it, you do start to see some kind of crossover between And, and ultimately, the, uh, the, the sort of end point of the path is very similar. Yeah. Um, I think maybe one more question. Sure. Um, did we get each of your favorite tracks from specific consoles? Oh, wow. I mean, for me, I, I guess NES, man, that's tough. For me, it's always going to be, uh, it's always going to come back to Mario, it's always going to come back to Koki Kondo, Mario, Zelda. Um, I might actually go with, specific track. I'm going to have to go with Air Man, Mega Man 2. Legend of Zelda. Um, interesting choice. It's just, we talked about the limitations of having um, three voices or two voices. This is essentially a single melody line that almost like a Charlie Parker solo outlines incredible like harmonic depth but melodic beauty at the same time. Sure. Anyways, amazing. Yeah, I might go with the uh, overworld from Doki Doki Panic or uh, Super Mario Bros. 2. SNES, uh, lately I feel like one of my absolute favorite things ever is probably uh, Beach from Plock by Tim and Jeff Vaughn. Um, but other than that, I mean, it would probably be maybe something from Mario World. It's got to be Mario World, Link to the Past. I don't know. The, the, it's, it's just, just to mix it up, a uh, title screen from the original Star Fox. That oh, gosh. Gosh. Staff role from Star Fox? We could, we could have a whole panel talking about our favorites. Yes, we have a lot of favorites. Well, we just want to thank everybody for coming out. We had a wonderful time. Awesome. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed uh, listening to our panel, The History of Video Game Music, with the audio straight from MAGFest. We just wanted to do this for those of you that weren't there to experience. Uh, thanks again to everyone who came out to support us and all the awesome people that we met at MAGFest, Stephen mm -hmm. and Brian, Carlos, Chip, Ben, Alyssa, all of you. It, it was just an incredible experience uh, getting to talk and 
uh, appreciate and share that whole wonderful event with all of you guys. So I hope you have a wonderful week. My name is Will Brueggemann. My name is Carl Brueggemann. My name is Marty Brueggemann. Have a great week, everyone. Talk to you guys on Monday. Peace out. <laughs>